Hey everyone, this is Jason Shepard, and you're listening to the Commercial Pilot Podcast by M0A.com, where a good pilot is always learning. What do the words minimum fuel mean to you? Hey everyone, this is Jason Shepard of M0A.com. You're listening to the Commercial Pilot Podcast brought to you by the Ground School Academy, groundschoolacademy.com. Check out our number one rated online ground school. Get a chance to interact with myself each and every Monday night, as well as enjoy over four or five, almost 600 full HD and some even 4K, four times the quality of HD video. Visit groundschoolacademy.com to check it out and learn more. The words minimum fuel. It's a polite way of saying, hey, listen, I haven't quite declared an emergency just yet, but if you don't get me to where I'm going to, I might be declaring an emergency. I need to get to where I'm going without any delay. I can't afford to be vectored. I can't afford to be placed in a holding pattern. I need the most direct to route you can give me right now. Now, trust me, if you were to utter those words, minimum fuel, I guarantee there's going to be a little bit of paperwork waiting for you, but a lot less paperwork than if you accidentally or actually ran out of gas. And again, I shared this on the private pilot podcast with my guys that I don't want to ever make it in the NTSB reports, but I definitely don't want to make it in the NTSB reports for something as silly as running out of fuel. In fact, with my private pilot guys, I'm sure you guys at the commercial pilot level already know this. If not, please go listen to the most recent episode, Required Pre-Flight Action is the name of the episode for the private pilot, where we talk about CFR 91103, the required pre-flight action. What should I be doing before each and every flight? What is required by the FAA for me to do? before each and every flight. And one of those is to know the fuel required and certainly alternates available as well. But what is the fuel required? You know, the FAA for VFR day just requires enough fuel to my destination plus 30 minutes. What does 30 minutes of fuel actually look like? Well, it's not a lot of fuel, guys. (laughs) It's in some aircraft, it's just a few gallons. It's, it's not a whole lot, 30 minutes of fuel when you, when you think about it, if you had to visualize it. So the accident we're going to analyze here is a commercial pilot who's flying a 310 for a local company. It's a growing company in the area, it sounds like. Uh, they just purchased a 310 uh, for some for the owner and some of the upper management to, to get around. It's a, a 310's a decent little airplane. You know, it's certainly logical for a small business to purchase something like this and uh, for local travel, then work their way up to, who knows, a 340, a 414, a King Air. Who knows where they'll go and where their business will grow from there. It's a it's a logical start. I see a lot of companies start this way. They, they purchase the 210, the 310, those sort of things, and then uh, make that upgrade. So you as a commercial pilot looking for a flying gig, well, a 310, you know, hey, listen, I get paid to fly a 310, log some multi-engine time. I, I can imagine those of you who are aspiring commercial pilot or maybe already a commercial pilot say, hey, listen, Pay me to fly a 310 log multi-engine time? Sure, I'll do it. 
But what happened in this case of minimum fuel, well, might surprise you that this would happen, that a commercial pilot would actually allow this to happen. And let me go ahead and read that NTSB report for you. The co-pilot stated that the PIC, and I can stop right there right now, a 310 is not a co-pilot required, a two-pilot required aircraft. One pilot can operate a 310. You don't need two pilots. So now we have two pilots and we still have a boneheaded mistake like this. Let me start over again. I don't mean to, you know, I like to ramble sometimes, but geez, does that, that's the first thing that kind of jumped out at me with this. The co-pilot stated the PIC had requested a lower altitude and switched the fuel tanks from the main fuel tank to the auxiliary fuel tank position. The engine sputtered and they switched back to the main fuel position. So far, so good. I always say, you know, when you're switching tanks, especially my, my Cherokee flyers, uh, you guys get this, my low wing flyers, you switch the fuel tank, you watch the fuel pressure, something happens, you switch it right back. So far, so good. So they switched it back to the main fuel position. The pilot, the PIC, informed ATC, sir, we are running out of fuel now. Now, he didn't declare it as eloquently as you should, minimum fuel. He said, though, sir, we are running out of fuel now. A witness heard the engine sputter and saw the airplane approach his position at treetop level. Interesting. The airplane made a left turn, followed by a steep bank to the right, and disappeared from view below the tree line. Examination of the crash site revealed the left fuel sector was the main was in the main fuel position. I'm sorry, it's fuel selector. So the left fuel selector was in the main fuel position. The right fuel selector was found loosely in between auxiliary and main fuel positions. Now, as someone who's flown multi-engine Cessna aircraft, the 414, the early 414s, the early 340s, the fuel selector system can be a little bit confusing, having, you know, obviously one for each tank, left and right, auxiliary mains, that sort of stuff, balancing that, you know, you got to know your numbers, you got to know how to balance that system, I get it. The left one was found in the main position, the right one was found kind of in between the auxiliary and the main fuel positions. Disassembly of both engines revealed no evidence of a pre-crash mechanical failure or malfunction. Examination of the left propeller revealed it was operating under low power at impact and was probably windmilling. The right propeller was operating under conditions of high power at impact. Neither propeller was in the feather position or in the vicinity of a low pitch at stop or a pitch stop at impact. So now we dig a little bit deeper. Were these guys really low on fuel? Or did they just not know how to work this aircraft quite possibly? Well, you dig into a little bit further, and it turns out they were sort of out of fuel. They certainly had a lot less than they should have, but they ended up having a little bit of fuel in that right tank, enough to complete their mission, the same right tank that they had left in between the main and the auxiliary positions. Their left tank, however, they had run dry. 
and you look at things like fuel management, and, and you, let's look back to the chain of events that led up to this accident. Now, uh, both pilots walked away okay, thank goodness. I'm sure egos bruised, and I'm sure a suspension on their pilot certificate, no doubt. But you look at this and go, you ran one tank dry, the left wing dry. Now, in a multi-engine aircraft, you never want to be unbalanced in the fuel situation because if you were to lose an engine, you're a VMC roll accident just waiting to happen. So running that tank dry certainly didn't help. And I believe that's a reason for their roll and their turn shortly before impact of their crash. Their right engine was running. Their left engine is what the witness said he heard sputtering that they had run dry. And the right tank, they just couldn't figure it out. And they ended up allowing that one to quit as well, leaving it in that improper position, kind of halfway between auxiliary and halfway between the main tanks. And here's my point of this story, guys, is that just because you're a commercial pilot doesn't mean you're invincible. You're flying more high-performance aircraft. And I would argue, too, these guys were probably newer commercial pilots. Obviously, flying a 310 commercially uh, isn't the dream gig. It's certainly a sweet gig, like I said, get paid to log some multi-engine time. But I'd imagine it's probably one of your initial flying gigs that you would get, if you know what I mean, flying a 310 early on to, to build some time and make some money here. And these were some guys that maybe weren't totally versed in fuel management. By that, I mean having auxiliary tanks, having main tanks, both left and right side, two fuel selector valves, trying to kind of figure all that sort of stuff out. Maybe they weren't properly versed in that. But truthfully, why were they flying with such little fuel in the first place? That's what I really want to know. And the point I want to illustrate is, again, I know you can't know it all, but you need to become a master of your aircraft. When, and maybe this is just me. You know, I know sometime in the near future, I want to purchase, purchase uh, a Citation jet. It's one of my goals. I'm, I, I like to be a big thinker. It's one of my goals and dreams. So what did I do? I'm probably... Uh, a year, two years out from accomplishing that dream. I've already got the SimCom manuals, the POH, everything else, and I'm reading and learning everything I can about that aircraft before I even own one. I hope you do the same in your commercial pilot training. Maybe there's a gentleman who has a 310 or a 210 or a 414 at the airport and he's kind of hinted, listen, when you get your commercial ticket, man, come tag along with me. I'd be learning everything I could about that aircraft. So my challenge to you, my homework is to you, go start dreaming. What are some aircraft that you'd like to get some time in? Hop on eBay and start looking for a POH in that aircraft. And let's start using that as our weekend read, our reader, our before bed reader, when I first wake up reader, whenever your time is to read something and start diving into the calculations, reading and learning more about the systems. See, here's two pilots that could fly a multi-engine airplane 
but you read more into this NTSB report, their time in a 310 was hardly anything. It was enough to satisfy the insurance requirement. That's what it was. Now, I don't know how well-versed they were knowledge-wise. Obviously, they ended up having this accident. They could have been that well-versed knowledge-wise. But you don't want your first commercial pilot job to end up like this. I can assure you of that. So go out and find some knowledge and start diving into aircraft that you want to own one day. And let's start learning every little thing we can about them. That's my challenge to you. That's my homework to you guys. Short but sweet podcast today, guys. I appreciate all you guys do. Thank you for helping making this five-part podcast series private, instrument, commercial, CFI, Inspire Aviation, those five podcasts, number one through five on iTunes in the aviation category. We certainly couldn't do it without you guys. Thanks so much for being a blessing to us. Guys, if there's anything we can do this week to help make you a safer, smarter pilot, please, please, please don't hesitate to reach out. Guys, enjoy the rest of your day. And most importantly, remember that a good pilot is always learning. Have a great day, guys. See ya.